0: Everyone, Joe Soto here. Today we have a great, uh, a special guest, a great treat for everybody. We have master NLP trainer, Wyatt Woodsmall, one of the first people to ever mentor, Tony Robbins. So stay with me. We're gonna come back with Wyatt here in just a moment. is the Not Your Average Joe Show, where each week we bring you sales, marketing, and mindset strategies you need to get to your next level. And now, here's your host, international business mentor, Joe Soto.
1: Hey, Wyatt. Hey, Joe.
0: We are live, and thank you so much for being here, first of all. It's a privilege. I appreciate you being my guest. We have a lot of information that I want to, a lot of questions I want to ask you today. And I want to start with maybe giving, letting you just do a quick introduction. Uh, But before you do that, let me give a little bit of a preface to that. Years ago, I had read uh, an incredible book called People, Pattern, Power by the great Wood Small back in 1998. I, at the time, was working for one of the largest credit and collection companies in the Midwest, in Iowa, and started to use that material to create a uh, a, kind of a curriculum for how you can better respond to collect money from people who didn't want to pay their bills. And we were using the information from that book as a basis to be more persuasive and more influential. And Thank goodness, because that really set the stage for what ended up launching a training career for me. And little did I know that many years later, Wyatt and I's paths would cross. And I couldn't be more grateful. Wyatt's spoken at my uh, my annual event that we hold in Northern Virginia every year. And we now have him here as our guest. So Wyatt, uh, why don't you share a little bit, because I know you were one of the first people to originally mentor people like Tony Robbins. I know you've mentored people like Evan Pagan and Joe Polish and others uh, a lot of people have heard of, of all these people, but mon- most of them don't know who you are because you're kind of behind the scenes, this this performance coach and modeler. Why don't you share a little bit about your background and and what this whole concept of advanced behavioral modeling is all about?
1: Okay. Thank you, Joe. <clears throat> so uh, let's start with neuro-linguistic programming, <clears throat> which is the basis of advanced behavioral modeling. And uh, neuro-linguistic programming is a behavioral science change technology. It's been around about 50 years now, and I've been teaching it for about 40 years. So uh, originally it was created by Frank Puselik, John Grinder, and Richard Bandler, and I've studied with all of them. And when I got involved in NLP, uh, NLP was created through a process of modeling. And modeling is a process of capturing, encoding, replicating, and transferring expertise. So some people are obviously better at what they do than others. And what makes them different? Uh, What makes them better? So modeling is a process of interacting with the model or models to figure out how they do what they do. It's not what they do, it's how they do it. And uh, now then there are a lot of people out there that are experts, and uh, they, uh, but they're not able to transfer what they do to other people. Now, you may say, well, that sounds like a rather brash statement, but the evidence is simple. If they knew how they did what they did and they could train other people to do it, their students would be as good as they are. And that's very seldom the case. So why is that? Because the experts operate out of unconscious competence. They don't know how they do what they do. There's what we call the learning staircase or ladder. And you start with unconscious incompetence. And then you become aware that you're ignorant. And then you move into conscious incompetence where you are aware you're ignorant. And then you move into practicing and consciously doing what you're doing, which is conscious competence. And finally, you end up in unconscious competence where everything just drops off and you do it without having to think about it. Outstanding example is learning to drive a car. So the first time you get in a car, it's scary. And it looks like, well, there's nothing to it. But when you pull out on a highway, with cars traveling at 70 to 80 miles an hour flipping by you, then suddenly it becomes a challenging thing. But once you've learned to drive, you just get in it and don't even think about it. You drive from here to where you're going, you get there, and you may have no memory of anything that happened in route. And that's because who was driving your car? Your unconscious was driving your car, not you. And so that it's your unconscious that's responsible for the results you produce. So you can't just ask somebody what they do. You've got to have ways then to observe and to find out the unconscious patterns behind what they do. So that, Joe, is the basic idea behind modeling. And as I said, modeling comes out of an LP. And when I got interested in an LP, from the very beginning, I was interested in modeling. Most NLP people, when I first started studying it, were interested in therapy. I wasn't particularly interested in therapy. I was interested in business. And I was interested in how business experts did what they did. So, in creating NLP, Grunder, Bandler, and Pearsallick worked with some therapists. They worked with Milton Erickson. They worked with Fritz Pearl. They worked with Virginia Satir. They work Gregory Bateson, who was not a therapist. But uh, so most of the early work was in therapy and uh, that went into neurolinguistic programming. But I wasn't particularly interested in therapy. I was interested in business and how you could capture the talents and abilities of amazing people and transfer that ability to other people. I was interested in performance enhancement which is what modeling is all about. So, uh, so anyway, I've spent the last 40 years then in in Men and OP, primarily focused on modeling. And over that time, I've got to meet some amazing people who were able to do some phenomenal things that totally expanded my belief of what humans were capable of doing. So I've modeled people from Olympic athletes to a salesman we'll talk about later who was able to sell a half a billion dollars of product over five years, to perhaps the greatest educator of the 20th century, to I did work with the Army and military and modeling, rifle shooting, pistol shooting, stinger gunnery, uh, even hovercraft operators. So in any case, the list goes on and on.
0: Well, and Robbins talks about the pistol shooting modeling project in his book, Unlimited Power, which yes. by the way, he acknowledges you in Unlimited uh, in, in Unlimited Power as you and I think you and uh, Ken Blanchard are the only two people he really acknowledges at the beginning of the book, aside from the people he learned NLP originally from. And you were the person who brought him into that modeling project, not to go too deep down that path, but that originated with, it was your project, Yes.
1: Correct. I was at that point a civilian employee of the Department of the Army and a very bright general who's passed on now, General Stubblebine, uh, wanted to know how we could improve training in the Army. And he was the head of uh, INSCOM, the Intelligence Security Command. So he set up a task force to explore various technologies and methodologies that could improve training in the army and so one of them was modeling and i basically then was the uh, the person behind the modeling task force and so we set up a task force with uh uh an interagency task force we had a navy captain we had uh, two people from the central intelligence agency and we had uh, a group of people from army and uh, We put together a team then and set out to uh, model skills and to prove that the technology was effective. So one of the things we started with was pistol marksmanship. And as a result, the head of the Army uh, marksmanship unit said it was the greatest advance in pistol shooting since World War II. And then we modeled rifle shooting. We got uh, we had to train drill sergeants to teach the course we designed and we got the highest score ever, ever done on the uh, Army marksmanship uh, training unit at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, in the one step uh, unit training. So uh, those were just a couple of examples.
0: So, Wyatt, would you would you mind sharing a little bit? You mentioned modeling somebody who had done over half a billion dollars in sales. Uh, and you don't mean like his company, you mean him personally had generated a half a million, half a billion dollars in sales and you were able to model him. Yes. Can you elaborate and maybe share that story with us? And and also, uh, you know, I know that the listeners and anyone watching would be keen to want to know what were some of the key attributes of, the, of this particular person, what did you model exactly and what could you share that somebody else might be able to replicate?
1: Okay, that's an excellent question and a long story, but we'll go ahead and get started. His name is Sean McCardle, and he was a printing salesman and he sold printing sales. So, uh, and he was the most successful salesman in the history of his industry. So nobody else anywhere in the world sold more printing than he did. And he, uh, sold the most in one year of anybody about $168,000 worth. And, uh, over five years, he sold over half a billion worth. Uh, and so, uh, uh, no, I said 168,000, I meant 168 million in one year. And so, any case, so I happened to meet him and uh, actually became friends with him and knew him over, I've uh, known him, I guess, for the last uh, 25 or 30 years. And uh, he was a rather obviously remarkable person. So I was curious as to how he was able to do what he did. So I had an opportunity to work with him. Uh, we even designed a training program as a result of the modeling process, which was called, uh, which we called the, uh, we developed this training program. I'll come back to that in a minute. And uh, <laughs> that, uh, so what we did then is, I got and the people that went through the training, then were able to go out and produce some amazing results. So there was one lady, Ginny Mose from Chicago, that once the training was over, went home and sold a $20 million sale. And so we asked her, well, how did you do that? And she said, all I did was exactly what you told me. And so... We said, great. And so we said, what was the most important thing? And she said, well, the first thing you taught me is go after the top, not the bottom. Everybody's trying to go after the bottom. The bottom's a lot harder to sell to. Whereas if you go after the top, there's not that many people going after the top. And the payoff is much greater. So she had had this client for years and everybody had been afraid to try to approach them. And she came out of the training with the attitude, the motivation, and the skills. So she went back and said, okay, it's time to bite the bullet. And she went for it. And she managed to land land the largest contract in the history of her company. And, And nobody else had even done a quarter of that in one sale. So once again, So this was the result of the training we designed, which we call the Rainmaker Seminar. Seminar. It's about creating rainmakers. A rainmaker is a salesman that's able to sell so much that they basically carry the whole company on their back. And so uh, we were not just interested in creating average salesmen. We wanted to create super salesmen. And that's what we set out to do because that's what Sean was uh, the most successful salesman in the history of his industry. So uh, yeah,
0: this, is the- a, this is an important point, which is the going for the top instead of the bottom in sales, you know the I love how you put it, which is the bottom is a lot more crowded and everyone's going after the people at the bottom. I had a gentleman I, I'm coaching yesterday who said to me, he did a campaign where he messaged. Uh, well, he did a campaign where his uh, one of his team members called into companies and they asked the question, "Who handles your marketing?" Because he sells marketing services, and the campaign didn't go very well overall. Not a lot of responses back when he sent the information to the person who handled the marketing. Not a lot of responses back. He says, "What do you think the issue was?" I said, "The issue is in the question." <laughs> of your very first outreach, which is the person who handles the marketing isn't the person who may write the check. So if you don't start at the top and let them pass you down if they, if they have to, it's a lot easier to be passed down than to go up. I said, so start at the top, try and stay at the top as much as possible to deal with the decision maker. But if you do get passed down to someone who handles the marketing, at least you have the leverage of, the, of their boss or their superior who said, they want them to listen to what you have to say. Um, this is a critical, critical point, and a lot of people miss it in sales. Sorry, why? keep going.
1: Okay, absolutely. So uh, don't start at the bottom. You'll never get out of the bottom. <laughs> the top. And so uh, we continually uh, ran into this experience when we were doing modeling projects. And so uh, that the people at the top are the ones able to make the decision. And so one of the most problem with most organizations is there are all sorts of people in the chain that can say no, but they can't say yes. So it's got to get passed up and got you to get to the yes, but it never gets passed up because you got all these people at the bottom. So frequently what happens if you go into an organization, you're going to find somebody who's going to be your sponsor in that organization. And then what we would have to do would be work with that person and train them how to sell it in their organization. And frequently you'd go in and you'd be excited because you had somebody who was excited about what you were doing and you thought, oh, we got a great spokesman. But the problem is that nobody else in their organization paid any attention to them and they couldn't sell anything. So you would have to teach them how to go about selling and Working your way up, so do everything you can to go as high as you can in the organization initially, and uh, that's uh, that's incredibly important advice, and particularly in sales, go for the top, go for the big one. That's what it's about. Okay, so why,
0: why yeah. you've I know that you may maybe you're going to get into this part, but you've also talked a lot about um sales emotions and and how how our emotions our emotions come from the pictures in our head uh, what we're saying to ourselves how we're saying it to ourselves um and and in the in the feelings that we have in our bodies can you elaborate a little bit maybe on the on this particular project modeling this particular individual or maybe you could just say listen i've modeled enough of sales to know how you know how people should take control of this but for people who have never even heard that before, maybe we start with that in terms of how these emotions are created. So how, how do we how do people manage the maybe the interfering emotions of fear of rejection or fear of going to the top of somebody who maybe they have some sort of picture? They're telling themselves that person is higher up than them and maybe they can't speak to their level. What kinds of things do you think people are saying to themselves and how, what would be your advice on that?
1: Okay, as you said, Joe, that people sabotage themselves. And uh, that's the problem. And emotions don't come from nowhere. They don't come out of thin air. They come from pictures in our head. They come from the tonality of our internal dialogue. They come from sensations in our body. And so we first have to understand where the emotions are coming from. And people are making pictures outside of their conscious awareness of them failing. They're talking themselves in a tone of voice about failing that they don't realize. And not surprisingly, they end up a self-fulfilling prophecy and they end up failing. So that it has to do with what we call emotional intelligence. And it has to do with being able to control and work with your emotions. Emotional intelligence is four things. It's according to Goldman, who's the one that created the term. And so that emotional intelligence is being able to know what emotions you're experiencing. Uh, second, it's being able to control your emotions. Third, it's being able to calibrate what emotions other people are experiencing. And fourth, it's being able to influence their emotions. Now in sales, that's common knowledge. Every major sales trainer says that people make up their mind on the basis of emotions and justify it and rationalize it with reasons. So it's not reasons that sell, it's emotions that sell. But you got to give the reasons so people can justify it to themselves. So emotions are critically important in sales. So you got to be able to read other people's emotions. And that comes from a lot of experience and a lot of situations and interacting with a lot of people. And you've got to be able to influence other people's emotions. So how do you influence other people's emotions? So let's back up a little. The University of Chicago did a study in the banking industry on sales, which my experience says applies to virtually every industry. And they found a third of the customers were rate-oriented, a third of the customers were relationship-oriented, and a third of the customers were task oriented so what this meant is for the people that were relationship oriented who are affiliation motive then what was important to them was the salesman that they were dealing with now there are three classic approaches to sales so traditionally approach is then the willie Loman approach from the famous martha miller's play Death of a salesman. And so, as the line goes, as Miller says, there's a man out there somewhere riding on a smile and the shoe shine. (laughs) And one day people stop smiling back, and that's an earthquake. Then he gets a couple of specks of dirt on his hat, and he's finished. Well, hopefully, it's not as tragic as that. And nevertheless, in sales, then. Uh, As Sean liked to say, you want them to be happy to see you come and sad to see you go. So for an affiliation salesman, you become their friend, you become their counselor, you become their advisor, you become their confidant. So you've got to get a relationship in which they trust you and they respect you. And so a third of the people then are affiliation oriented And that they want a relationship with the salesman. And this is the classic salesman. A second group is achievement oriented. So what they want is service. They want the best service that they can get. And so therefore, to sell to these people, you're not just selling a product, you're selling a service. And you're selling yourself. So, you got to focus on the service then and providing excellent customer support, excellent service. And a third of the people are rate oriented. They want the cheapest price. They want the cheapest price. And they'll change as soon as somebody gives them a cheaper price. So, in the banking industry, they used to give away ridiculous things like toasters or an electric skillet or whatever if you would sign up an account for the bank and you had to keep it in for like six months or something. And I had a a friend I knew, and so he would do this as soon as the six months was up, he'd pull the money out and go to another bank that was offering him another toaster. So, I mean, it was ridiculous. It was uh, no loyalty to the bank. It was simply continually moving bank accounts continually because he wanted the cheapest price. Now, what happens is a lot of salesmen, if not most, go after the cheapest price. They think they've got to be able to compete on the basis of price, and that's a mistake. It's a mistake for this reason. So the first thing is, if you cut your price, you cut your margins, and you end up then going out of business because you're not making any money. Just because you got high volume. It's not high volume, it's high margin that's important in sales. But in order to get high margin, you gotta justify your margin. Now, the second reason that's a problem is only a third of the customers are rate oriented. They have no brand loyalty. They'll be like the toaster guy. They're gonna shift every time that uh, they get a chance and they're not gonna stick with you. So you're wasting your time with these people. But <laughs> You need to be spending your time is with the third that are relationship oriented and the third that are service oriented. That's where the money is. That's where the business is. These people will pay more money for a relationship and they'll pay more money for better service. And so the salesman that's chasing the cheapest price is uh, is not a good strategy. And it's certainly not a strategy that's going to keep them in business because once again, they're cutting their margins and there's always going to be somebody that's going to be able to cut their margin cheaper. So you
0: don't want to compete on the basis of price. Wyatt, to, yes. Sorry to so interrupt. How do you identify um, the people that are affiliation or achievement? I mean, obviously the people that are on rate and price will ask you and, keep the conversation directed towards price. So they might be the easiest ones to detect. And I often say, beware the cost of the lowest price. But how do you identify affiliation and achievement people? What are some things to listen for or see? What are some characteristics of affiliation and achievement people that can make it obvious for us to know what style they are so we can adapt accordingly? Because one of the things we might get stuck with is that if I'm an achievement type person, I might try to force that type of Sale onto somebody who might be affiliation.
1: Okay, once again, Joe, it's experience and learning to do these things. So when you meet somebody and you shake hands, immediately gives you an indication of who you're dealing with. So the affiliation person is going to take your hand, they're going to hold it maybe longer than you would be comfortable. Uh, they're going to look you in the eye. They're going to shake the hand. They may hug you. Uh, they're going to want you to be comfortable. They're going to ask you to sit down. They're going to offer you coffee. They're going to can I help you. So they're going to obviously be interested in your well-being, whereas the task person is pretty much matter-of-fact. So a handshake is simply a formality you want to get over with so you can get on to doing business, and they're concerned about efficiency and time, so they don't want to waste time. So, uh, and they want to get to the point and they want to uh, get to uh, what they want and they want to achieve their goal. So, they're going to have a uh, perfunctory handshake and then they're going to be okay, let's get on to business. And you can tell that. And then the third group is the power people. And these are the ones that are all about rate. And they're going to grab your hand in a bone crushing handshake while they're looking at you with this look that says, I own you and I control you. And it's all about dominance and power. So you should be able to. And then they'll tell you, sit down and they'll start telling you what to do. And so as opposed to asking you what to do or asking you what you'd like, so it should be fairly easy to tell whether somebody's coming out of power affiliation or achievement. And so that's one of the best indicators. And as you said, the power persons want to want to discuss price and that to them is the only consideration. The affiliation person is going to want to have a social time in order to develop a social interaction. And the achievement person is going to be matter of fact, and let's get down to business and straightforward and concerns about efficiency. In dealing with the affiliation person, it's interesting. So once again, as I said, as a salesman, you need to be likable if you want to get the affiliation people and they are about a third of the people. So you've got to be friendly. You've got to be respectful. You've got to be helpful above all else. So I remember Sean telling me a story. <clears throat> he was out on a call on a printing sales. <clears throat> he was talking to the lady who was the buyer. And, uh, so, uh, <clears throat> she seemed distracted. And he says, uh, you seem distracted. Is there something wrong? And she said, yeah, I just received a call from the school that my daughter is uh, had a problem. And so I'm sorry. I'm preoccupied with that. And Sean said, well, could I maybe then uh, let you go to the school and take care of your daughter and I'll stay here and answer the phone for you till you get back. And she said, would you do that? And he said, yes. So, uh, so it's a little things like that going out of your way in order to help another person in order to establish a long-term relationship. Uh, Joe and I both know another man who's, uh, one of the top salesmen in the world, one of the top sales trainers in the world and part of his personal, uh, mantra is that he create that he provides uh, value first and that he creates long-term relationships. So he doesn't create clients he creates friends for life. So that you're going to be much more comfortable doing business with somebody you like and who's a friend and who you trust than some pushy stranger that's trying to get you to buy. So the three approaches to sales, so the classic approach, as as we've said, is the affiliation. Second is the power salesman who gave salespeople a bad reputation because they're trying to force you to buy whether you want to buy or not. And the third is the achievement salesman. And they're basically a sales consultant. So they're there to consult with you. And if they can't help you, then they will refer you to somebody that they know that can and uh, or to one of their competitors if your needs are better met by that person. And so today, the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. At one point, it was the power salesman, and that now is no longer particularly in vogue. And today, it's more of the achievement salesman, and the affiliation is always there, and
0: it's always a factor. So yeah, I, I see a lot of the, you know, the trainings are. I'm I'm obviously on the achievement consultative sales spectrum, and <laughs> you know this, Wyatt. Yes. Uh, but I also have never heard anyone explain so well the such such a quick way to be able to identify the differences in these people, even from a physical handshake or from how they reach Now, if you're meeting over Zoom, it's the same thing. They're just not shaking your hand. But the achievement person wants to get down to business. The affiliation person wants to spend all this time with small talk and become friendly first. <clears> then <throat> the power person is the person that will stop you and interrupt or start the meeting with, all right, show me what you got. Tell me what it is. How much do you charge? And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. And they take that alpha position right from the beginning. So being able to, to decipher these three and in what you're alluding to also is that we can choose who we want to work with. We can choose who we want to be our clients. We are just, we can be just as selective as they are with us. And you're giving us insight on how to identify the two thirds that you most will succeed in selling to anyway and want to deal with. And, uh, I appreciate that incredible insight.
1: Okay. Thank you. So, uh, once again, as I go around the country and, uh, and work with salesmen, then this uh, continues to be reinforced so that there's no, uh, substitute for charm. And so, and uh, once again, you need to get to know your customer and a good salesman. will 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 find out, uh, what their family does, uh, what they're concerned about. And uh, then we'll, uh, we'll, uh, be the, uh, the person that is uh, going to show compassion, concern, ask them, uh, establish just like a friendship, like a friend would ask when they see you and they know what's going on in your family and they know what the people are doing and, uh, and they would ask. And the people appreciate that you know enough and care enough to do that. Another thing, so we're going to switch grounds a little here. So in sales, people buy for one of two reasons. They buy to get something they want, or they buy to avoid something they don't want. And so most salesmen think, well, it's all about buying to get something they want. And so that sales, then they think is a process of verbally vomiting features and benefits all over the client and then wondering why the client is not interested. So that in sales, there's a formula, obviously, that the needs of the client, when matched with the features of the product, become benefits, and people buy benefits, they don't buy features. And this is one of the big problems in technical sales, because technical people think it's all about quality of the product and about uh, and so they want to preach all of the features whereas the affiliation person may care less about that and the task person it's like they're going to ask you what they want and give an indication to you of what features they're interested in. Now the second thing as I said is a lot of salesmen and a lot of buyers are concerned in getting, uh, avoiding the hassles that they've had in the past. And since salesmen, power salesmen have given sales a bad reputation by promising all sorts of stuff they haven't delivered and therefore buyers become skeptical with good reason, which is why trust is such an issue and why it's critically important to establish that relationship. But the second thing is, uh, people then once again have been bitten before, so they want to make sure that the product is not going to have the same problems that they've had with other products in the past. So they don't particularly care about the features and benefits. What they care about is that it's reliable and that it'll provide the features that they need and that the company will stand behind it and will service it. So this is the achievement buyer and this is what they want. And so part of what in selling then, you're going to do a combination of things you're going to, which is what Sean did. So you're going to give the achievement buyer then the features they want and uh, stand behind them. But the second thing is that you need to find out what is it that keeps them awake at night? What is their worst nightmare? Mm -hmm. You want to camp out in that nightmare and make them assured that that's not going to happen with you. And uh, so you and the problem is most salesmen are going for the buck uh, or a lot of them are or they're going toward and they don't understand that half the clientele is moving away from and so therefore talking about all the features and benefits does nothing for the client what they want is assurance that they're not going to have the problems that they've had in the past on an ongoing basis and so in order to do that then you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to uh, be focused then on what it is that keeps them awake at night, what is their worst nightmare, and assure them that you're going to uh, get rid of that nightmare for them so they can sleep better.
0: So, so, so why if you can recognize this up front, then that the person has this moving away from motivation and you're in the process of asking questions or maybe you're in your early discovery with this client, you could just simply ask them, to maybe share with you some things they would like to avoid if they were partnering with a new company or if they were getting this new service and they'll just start rattling that off. And also it's pacing kind of what they're thinking about anyway. So is, so would you tie it into your questions? Would you say things like, Hey Jim, uh, would you mind sharing some things that you would hope that this doesn't do? What would you, what, what are some issues you've had in the past? You want to make sure you can avoid so I can assure you that we won't do that. Would you lead with questions is what I'm asking.
1: I would always lead with questions Good. and Sean always led with questions. Okay. And so that, uh, so part of the thing is you want to find out as much as you can about their past history. Mm -hmm. So that you're very seldom buying a product for the first time. So they probably had products in the past. So you want to find out what they've got now, what their experience with it is, uh, how happy they are with it, what their complaints have been about it. And that'll give you an idea then. The hardest person to sell to is a satisfied customer of somebody else. So if they're already satisfied, then you're going to have a hard sale. But if they're not satisfied, that gives you the foot in the door that you got to work on. So you got to find out what it is that they're not happy with. Now then, also in any industry, there are certain factors that are the usual concerns within that industry. So in printing, it's quality, it's speed, it's uh, those are the two primary things. And so uh, that you in whatever you're selling, you should know what the standard objections are and what the standard complaints are in your industry. And the best time to deal with that is, and to handle objections, is before they arise. So in your initial presentation and interaction, you want to deal with those issues so people know, well, you know what the standard problems are, and you're assuring them that you all have got a handle on that. So uh, so first, it's industry knowledge. And second, it's working with the person and finding out specifically. So certainly you can ask them. And the more you can find out about the history, then the better you're going to be. So uh, that's going to be an important part of the process. So you got to do your homework. you got to do your research. And uh, Sean would do his research. You got to know your competition and you got to know what they offer and you got to know what benefits they give and you got to know what drawbacks they have. So, one of the things then that also in working with Sean and one of the things we taught in the Rainmaker seminar <clears throat> is what we call framing. Now, framing is the essence of persuasion. And it's the essence of sales. So what do I mean by framing? So framing is that all information is context dependent. All information is context dependent. That's just another way of saying it depends. Depends (laughs) on a variety of things. So in selling then that, that you product has features and they may or may not be a benefit to the client and the competition has features which may or may not be benefit to the client. So what you got to do is you got to find out what the drawbacks of the competition are and you want to frame then these as drawbacks and as problems for the customer. <laughs> you want to frame what you're offering as solutions for the customer. So it's a process of what we call deframing, framing, deframing, and reframing. So, first, you got to deframe your competition. You got to take something that would seem to be a benefit and then come up with an explanation of why. It may seem to be a benefit, but actually it's a drawback. And that's the essence then of reframing that situation. Then you got to take what may be a drawback seemingly and reframe that as a benefit for the client. So it's all about values. It's all about understanding what the person wants and the results they want to achieve and understanding that everything can go. Everything is both, every feature can be both a benefit and a drawback, and it's how you frame it. It's how you frame it. So the essence of salesman is to be a super framer, to know how to frame things so that, therefore, they become beneficial to the customer, which means you really got to know the customer and know how to deframe your competition so people thought, well, gee, it sounded great. But now that I think about it and now that you point that out, yes, that is a problem and that's a drawback. So sales is all about benefits and drawbacks and how to balance them. And whether they're a benefit or a drawback depends on how you frame it and what context you put it in and that is the essence of sailing. that is the essence of selling
0: why I can see where people get in their own way here because they have their pattern we all have our own style so if we're if we're a you know strong moving toward achievement or affiliation person we're focused on pointing out the benefits and how and the results and the outcomes and the transformations or you know how the client can get what it is they want, and the client doesn't seem to respond to that. We're, we 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 tend to think other people are like ourselves, and so we sell the way our style is versus just stopping and being neutral enough to listen to the other person's style and what they're actually motivated by, which can be the drawbacks or the moving away from. And this this concept of the framing, deframing, and reframing. There's a book. Um, called uh pitch anything um and it's a good book on framing but he leaves out several pieces of this it's not the complete puzzle so when people sometimes recommend that book i say be careful because it's just one piece of the overall puzzle of what uh Oren does really well but i this maybe we should revitalize this rainmaker series this sounds like you're just scratching the surface here in this episode yes
1: <laughs> yes once again the more you know about the technology behind what I'm talking about and the more you know about neurolinguistic programming <clears throat> so that in the sales training then you need to uh, <clears throat> you we need to understand the basics and once you understand the basics the, actually the most basic thing of all is you have to sell yourself first it's amazing the number of salesmen that really believe that they are, that don't have it sold themselves and that are ashamed of what they're doing and of what they're selling, as opposed to being proud and viewing that they're giving the customer a major opportunity and a major gift. So, your attitude needs to be if you fail to make the sale, you fail the customer because what you have is of such value. That they need it and it'll help them. And if they don't get it, it somehow that was because you failed to convince them of this, and so you failed, and so you've got to really sell yourself first. And most salesmen haven't sold themselves first. So this is such what, an
0: this is an incredible insight, Wyatt. Because when you say they haven't sold themselves first, they're not even convinced that what they they haven't convinced themselves in such a way that it comes across or it's conveyed to the client. So for example, I often say that people bring their objections with them to the meetings that they go to, because if you're willing to concede on price or if price is an issue to you, um, or let's say that, you know, somebody is willing to, wants to negotiate, but you're used to negotiating, you'll accept that. You'll be tolerant of these objections because you have them yourself and often about your own product or service. And I've had people say this to me. I'll say, well, you know, they'll say, well, this is where we kind of break down. Our service isn't as good as it could be. And I'm like, well, if you're not convinced your service is as good as it can be, how can you possibly sell good service? And so we're getting in our own way, just even with our own beliefs, or not taking the time to figure out how, how, or spending enough time to convince ourselves. So would you recommend people stop selling what they're selling until they find something they can sell that they 100% believe in?
1: Absolutely.
0: Or Absolutely. Absolutely. So just stop. So, yeah. You know, So because otherwise it should come because they're going to be incongruent, right? Otherwise it it won't come across congruent.
1: I remember a great sales story that uh, I I think he's retired or he may be dead. I don't know. Zig Ziglar used to be the top sales trainer in the country. And he started off as a pot and pan salesman (laughs) of all things. So what he did is he was in the South and he sold cooking utensils and dishes. And what they would do is he would go to a home and he would, a customer, and he would get them to get some of their friends and he would cook a meal for them. And then he would try to sell the pots and pans. And so he had one of, he told the story about one of his colleagues who was also a pot and pan salesman. And the problem was that the guy didn't own a set of his own pots and pans. And so he would not sold himself. He was trying to sell them to other people, but he hadn't bought them himself. So what Ziegler did is Ziegler sold him a set of the pot and pans.
0: And once he did that, then his sales managed to increase. So we, My wife and I recently bought a full Cutco knife set. And, the gentleman who sold us the cut code knives was a, uh, a former member of my son's track team. And he had graduated and went on to college and he was in college. So he's using this job and to pay for some school and have extra money. And so we were on the sales call with them. He had me and my wife there and he was doing it virtually over, uh, I think it was over zoom and, he actually was on the phone and had us get on our computer to, to go through some of the demonstrations because he couldn't come to our house during a pandemic and do demonstrations with these this knife set. So I was curious to see how he was going to sell it. And I asked him the question because he was very congruent. He was very convinced on the products, yet he couldn't do any demonstrations. So I said, why do you believe in, in the knives? Like, how do you know? And he says, my mother owns several Cutco knives, and I've been using them over the years, so I know how good these knives are. He was completely sold on the quality of these knives, and quite honestly, it was that congruity and and uh, uh, confidence in the product coming from him, because I hadn't really ever seen or witnessed Cutco knives. My wife had, so she was almost pre-sold, but I wasn't, and, but him saying, no, these are the best knives I've ever had. And I, I grew up with them was all I really needed to hear was that he was 100% convinced. And I think it made him better at selling the product for sure. And he absolutely, and he became our customer now. And my wife's cut herself three or four times since <laughs> using the knives.
1: So you got to be careful with sharp knives when They're you're sharp, dull knives, and you suddenly get sharp knives. <laughs> That's a different story.
0: Yes, sir. Well, Wyatt, I think uh, we should wrap up here. I really appreciate this. We're going to have you on again anyway. So we're going to hear a lot more from you. I, you know, we have, uh, if you don't mind, I can share with people, I can share with everyone how they can learn more about you. Go to wyattswisdom.com. And uh, Wyatt has a free uh, handout on there on how to motivate your clients to take action. Which kind of reiterates some of the principles you shared today, which is really nice. It's a really great handout. I hope everyone goes there and, and downloads it. Go to wyattswisdom.com. You also are going to be doing an NLP certification training that we're going to be organizing together. And I'm looking forward to that. And it's going to be uh, sometime between now and the end of the year where we open that up for enrollment. And you can go to NL, uh, NLP certification and join that wait list as well. So it's nlpcertificationtraining.com for people who are listening and not watching. And uh, you can join that list. Wyatt, um, thank you so much for being on here, for being my guest. I can't wait to have you back. And uh, thanks for everything that you've taught me and continue to teach me. We're blessed to have you uh, as part of this community. And uh, I know we just got a chance. We just spent some time together down in the Wild Dunes, South Carolina for our mastermind group. Uh, What a treat that was. And I'm looking forward to having you again. Thanks for being with us.
1: Well, thank you, Joe, and good luck to your new podcast. Not your average Joe.
0: Well, I this you know, this is a, a show where I'm going to demand that people uh, not be average, and you're definitely not the average Joe. Thanks again for being here. See you, everyone.
1: Thank you. Bye bye.
0: Tune in next week for the Not Your Average Joe Show with international business mentor
1: Joe Soto. Oh, mm-hmm.